Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On the Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Peter Weiner, who's a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum, a contributing writer for The Atlantic and The New York Times, the author of the excellent book, The Death of Politics, and a veteran of several Republican administrations. It's fair to say that he's one of the most important conservative Christian intellectuals in America. His columns at Christmas and Easter are always beautiful and profound. Yet these days, he finds himself on the wrong side of a lot of the political energy in the evangelical world. I'm grateful to speak with him about the growing political agitation on the Christian right, including its causes and manifestations, and how to get back to what he describes as a more God-centered movement. Let me just say this conversation is not just for Christians or people of faith. The cultural and political developments that Peter has so aptly and eloquently defined in his writing are important for anyone who aspires to greater cohesion and tolerance in our society. Peter, Thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Sean. I'm looking forward to the uh, to the conversation, and thanks for the uh, for the kind words. Let's start by establishing your bona fides on these questions. You have two relevant identities for this conversation. First, you're an evangelical Christian. You didn't grow up in a particularly evangelical home, but over time, as an adult, you came to faith, and it's been a big part of you ever since. Second. You're what I describe as a pretty conventional, down-the-line conservative who served in different Republican administrations, worked for different center-right think tanks, and published articles and books with various center-right scholars. Why don't you start, Peter, by talking a bit about your Christian faith and your conservative politics and what, if any, interrelationship you see between the two? Yeah, it's 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 a good question. I'll start I'll start with faith. Um, you're right. I, I didn't uh, grow up in a particularly Christian home um, and didn't really have. I don't have any real memory of, of being a person of faith through elementary or junior high. I started my journey really in, in uh, high school between my junior and senior year, and it was an intellectual journey. Um, I, I really uh, started about the same time as, as my best friend, a fellow named Barry Shannon. And um, it just w- really involved a lot of uh, a lot of questions, um, a lot of searching. Um, the historical case for for uh, for faith uh, or or lack thereof. Uh, things like the um, you know the the pros and cons of the resurrection. Did it really happen? The manuscript copies, and then certain philosophical questions. Um, suffer, you know some of the ancient ones. Uh, how can a good God allow suffering and so forth and so on? Uh, my sister is five years older than I. Uh, had become a Christian. She'd gone to University of Washington. I grew up in Washington State, and she had come back for, for that summer. And so I remember peppering her uh, with questions through um, a notepad from uh, from my dad's work. Um, and so that began the journey. And then I ended up in a Bible study with a fellow named Carl Kopic, um, who was 
a, a pastor at um, a youth pastor, I think at, at uh, church Westside Church at that time. So that started it. It wasn't an easy journey. It wasn't a quick journey for me. Um, I remember telling my sister, even a couple of years in, that for me, faith was really a lot of uh, sort of like sand in the gears. Didn't come easy or naturally to to me. But over time, um, it became increasingly central to my life. I met key figures, um, Carl among them, obviously my sister, Steve Hayner, uh, who, who was a youth pastor at, at University of Washington at University Presbyterian Church, who later became president of InterVarsity and then Columbia Theological Seminary. And since then, many, many others, pastors and theologians. My sister, uh, younger of the two sisters, Jackie, is a person of faith, and we're very close too. So that's been the journey. And um, I moved from the, I would say, from the from, from the intellect more to the heart as that journey went, went, um, went on. Um, and, um, uh, that is, I would say the, probably the most important element of who I am, um, certainly one of them and pretty core, I would say to who I am. And it, I'm not sure how I would think of myself, uh, if I were to remove faith from, from, uh, from my life, um, how much would change, how much would, would, would remain, remain the same in terms of conservatism. Uh, my parents were Republican leaning, I would say conservative leaning. They were not ideological. Um, my formative years were in the seventies. So that was in the, well, during the end of and in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. I remember, um, my favorite classes in high school were social studies. My teachers were liberal. I was, I was not, I wasn't a conservative because I really thought things through for myself. Like a lot of people, it was derivative of, of my parents' belief. But over time, I, I became a conservative. It's, I'd say that the sort of late seventies, early eighties were formative for me in that period. Um, I do remember um, in the eighties being struck by the intellectual rigor of conservatism, which I think is very much lost now. But at that time, some really important books, um, Richard John Newhouse on the Naked Public Square, which is on faith and politics. Um, Antonin Scalia, who was a beautiful articulator of, of uh, certain judicial philosophy, um, originalism. Um, and uh, Charles Murray had written a book on welfare um, arguing that the welfare system was was uh, hurting the poor, the Alan Bloom and, and the closing of the American mind, which is on relativism that was spreading on college campuses. Um, and that that really attracted me. There was a sense in which I thought that conservatism, while it didn't control the commanding heights of culture, um, had the better of the arguments in, in my estimation, conform more to human realities. Um, and did the best in terms of, of the outworking of that philosophy to help human beings. Obviously, they're very smart liberals and progressives who have a different view, but that was, that was mine. Um, and so, um, I am to this day a Christian and a conservative, but I don't consider myself an evangelical or a Republican, uh, because I, I think both of those movements, um, have moved away from um, well, as, as Ronald Reagan said about being a Democrat, he said, uh, the, the, the party left me. I didn't, I didn't leave it. I have the feeling that those two movements have, have left. I'll just say one other thing. Evangelicalism is complicated because some people use the term and they have a theological construct in mind. Others use the term and it has some theological construct in mind, but it also is very much associated, as you know, 
with American politics and American culture. And for a variety of reasons, I don't consider myself all that comfortable with the evangelical movement, though so many of my friends are in it and I certainly have a history within it. That's a great segue, Peter, to my next question. You've made the case, including in a brilliant essay for The Atlantic in October 2021, that a lot of evangelical Christians have come to subordinate their faith to politics. Uh, what do you mean, and why do you think that this has happened? Yeah, it's um, what I meant by it is that um, I think a lot of people in the white evangelical movement, not all of them by any means, but an awful lot of them, I, I think that their core identity is actually not faith. I think it's something else. I think it's sometimes political, sometimes partisan, sometimes sociological, sometimes cultural. And that's sort of core, that's the starting point. And they're almost, almost incidentally people of faith, or that they are people of faith, but it's secondary. And, and what happens is that you take faith, you take Bible, you proof text the Bible, and you conform it to your pre-existing um, ideology, worldview, biases, prejudices. Um, and, um, but I don't think that an awful lot of people of the Christian, I would say most of them, don't believe that. So if you gave them sodium pentothal and asked them, they would say, no, no, faith is central to, to who I am. Um, and they believe that their cultural views or their political views or their partisan views are a natural outworking of what it means to be, in the case of a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So I don't think most of them are being cynical about it. I think it's part of the complications of, of being human. I think all of us struggle with that. And all of us are formed by dozens and dozens of factors that, that we're not really fully aware of um, until somebody points them out to us. And that has to do with some of the things I mentioned, um, our families of origin, our, our own dispositions, the country in which we live in, the era in which we live in, our race, our gender. Um, you know, if, 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 if you and I were uh, women who lived in the 14th century on a different continent and we were given some the Bible to read, we would bring with it certain worldviews, certain prism through which we read it that we couldn't possibly escape. So I, I think part of it is 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 that, and so I think for a lot of people uh, on the Christian right, the core identity is is cultural and political. Um, why that happens is part, partly, as I said, I think it's 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 human human nature. I, I do think in the case of a lot of evangelical Christians, there's a whole series of currents that were in motion prior to Donald Trump that in a sense came together, climaxed with Donald Trump and have since been um, amplified. One is, I would say, a deep sense of grievance and resentments that's been brewing on the Christian right for, for many decades. Some of that is, is understandable. I think some of it is, is vastly overstated. But it is a sense that, that the cultural elite looked down on them, dishonored them, looked on them with patronizing attitudes. And that certainly has been, I think, uh, the case. Um, and so it's this, this sense of roiling anger uh, at being treated um, as, as uh, in a way that, that, uh, that was condescending. Um, so I think that's one. The second is a sense of real fear. If you talk to people on the Christian right, it's a, it's a feeling that we're in um, existential struggle. That's the children of light against children of darkness that in, in this country, in the United States, that we're on the edge of, of a cliff uh, and that the progressives want to destroy them and their children and their country and almost everything that they hold uh, dear. 
Um, and it's a flight 93 uh, is the term that's, 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 that's used, a sense that we have to storm uh, at the, the, the cockpit because if nothing changes, we're going to, to be destroyed. If you, if you read, for example, Rod Dreher of the American Conservative, um, his tweets and his articles, I mean, it's just a constant drumbeat of tremendous fear um, and, um, and this uh, overwhelming enemy. Siloed information, I think, has been huge, particularly since the internet and, and social media. Um, and that's true of all sides uh, of the political debate. But since we're talking here about evangelicals and the American right, there's a huge eco media ecosystem. Um, and people listen to that. You can listen to it 15, 20, 30 hours a week and get their information from there. Another thing that's that, that's happened, and you really saw this in the American right, it was a shift, I would say, between you know, the 90s and the 2000s, if you listen, say, to Rush Limbaugh, Mark Levin and conservative talk radio, um, it went from the, the polarity was liberal conservative for the 80s and the 90s. But you could see how it began to shift from liberal conservative to establishment, anti-establishment. So if you listen to Mark Levin or Rush Limbaugh by the end of the 2000s, early 2010s, they were almost as likely to be critical of John Boehner and Mitch McConnell as Barack Obama. And so that created this feeling of anti-establishment, uh, anti-authority, and then an anti-institutionalism, which has always been a, lurking out there for evangelicals as, as well. Um, I'd say that there's also kind of psychic satisfaction that Donald Trump brought to a lot of uh, Christians on the right, a feeling that he would bring a gun to a cultural knife fight. Uh, and that he would use methods that they themselves in the past wouldn't be comfortable with, but that the anger and the hate for the left was so great that there was a sort of psychic satisfaction and um, saying, well, this guy is going to do, to to get, uh, give them what they deserve, that there's a, there's, there's a feeling of, uh, of, of vengeance. And then finally, that there were just key figures, I think, throughout the, the decades that you can look to, everyone from an Ollie North in the 80s to a Newt Gingrich in the 90s to a Sarah Palin in the 2000s, who came to represent, they were kind of rock stars in the American right. So there's always a tendency within evangelicalism, the American right, to be drawn to these to these elements, yeah, anti-intellectualism, anti-establishment, sort of dark tendencies in the American right. Fortunately, for most of my lifetime, there were leaders who kept that in check and kept those fringe movements on the fringe. Of course, with Donald Trump, um, he he not only welcomed them, but 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 as I said earlier, he he uh, he amplified them. So it's it's a complicated story, um, and. Um, and I, I don't think it's fair to say that this is just a, a product of Donald Trump. Something allowed Donald Trump to win the nomination and for Trumpism and the sort of MAGA mentality to take root. That's a comprehensive answer, Peter. And there are some lines I want to come back to. But if we can just stay on on the track with regards to the relationship between faith and politics. One criticism that you often hear from secular voices or even progressive Christians is that there's nothing inherently conservative about the Christian faith. In fact, for a big part of the 20th century, Christians engaged in politics tended to be on the left. I'm thinking, for instance, of the social gospel movement in, in both of our countries. Do you want to address this issue head on? How has Christianity, particularly in your country, come to be so interconnected with conservative politics? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting it's an interesting question. I'd say you know the the first thing I'd say is that the 
the, the relationship, the interaction, the intersection between faith and politics is, is, is a complicated one. I, I would say that I'm, I'm one who's probably some, somewhere in the middle, um, which is I don't believe faith and politics should be entirely separated because I think politics has at its uh, core justice and so does faith and they intersect. Um, they're obviously different domains and justice can be pursued in non-political realm, but politics at its best is about justice and faith. Christian faith cares, cares, um, about, about justice, but I've never felt like Christianity can be reduced to any political ideology. I've always thought, um, that Christianity stands in judgment of all political ideologies. And it's very hard and, and very dicey to try and connect biblical principles to practical policies. I don't think it's impossible. We could all come up with with examples where you would say, you know, the abolition movement and segregation would be two obvious ones. There are a lot of others where you would say, look, the outworking of faith um, has to finally attach itself to some specific policies and positions. I think it's a really high bar to cross. And I think honorable and honest people can disagree about it. And you're quite right. For for much of the 20th century, the manifestation of Christian faith was in the social gospel movement um, and liberal figures. Then it moved to the to to the to the right. I would say part of that is because of the demographics of the people who were who who were people of faith. Um, uh, that they tended to be conservative, particularly culturally conservative in their views. And so when they went there, their faith went, went with them. I'd say, you know, in their defense, there is an argument, I would say a Christian argument of certain teleology and human order, um, that, that, uh, people on the right have, have argued for. Um, and, uh, including on issues of, of, of human sexuality, um, the issue of abortion. And I'm pro-life, but I'm complicated pro-life. I've written about that. I uh, I find myself in an almost impossibly morally complicated issue to sort to sort through. But the but the uh, abortion issue was was important. Unfortunately, quite honestly, I think there's enough evidence that there were uh, ugly elements of racism that were attached with some people of faith, and, including in, in, in the American South. That um, that that uh, that drove them there, but on top of that, the, in in the United States today, this is just an empirical statement, not necessarily a statement of judgment. The Democratic Party um, and the American left, certainly American progressives, have become increasingly secular. So, if you're a person of faith, you don't really particularly feel welcome there, or you least feel a little bit that you're an alien force, and that's just what's happened. People who believe pronounce that they're believers in God, certainly Christians tended to move toward the right in the Republican Party and people who are atheists or agnostics, not particularly believers, have tended to move more toward the Democratic Party, the progressive movement. That doesn't mean, obviously, there isn't some overlap. There, there, there is. But generally speaking, that's been a trend that's been in, in that we've uh, undergone for several decades now. And people tend to, uh, spend time and, and congregate and create community with people who see the world more or less like, like they do. So I think that's part of the explanation as well. You talked earlier, Peter, about the growing tendency on the part of Christian conservatives to align themselves with unchristian leaders like Donald Trump. In a lot of these cases, they've made a bad bargain. Be wrong to dismiss their view that parts of the culture, particularly elite institutions, as you say, 
are averse or even hostile to their lifestyles and beliefs. This probably applies more to Canada than the U.S., um, but I often joke that the so-called culture war doesn't feel like a war at all. It feels like a one-sided shellacking in which secular progressives don't seem to have a lot of grace or empathy for the, the other side. They keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Although our audience probably tilts right, it's a pretty ecumenical listenership, including some progressives. Peter, what would you say to our progressive listeners about the role that progressive politics has played in contributing to these feelings of embattlement and anger present on the modern right, including among some Christians? Yeah, I, I, I think progressives have things to answer for, just like I think people on the right have to have things to answer answer for. I, I suppose I would say that human there's a lot to answer for because no movement or no ideology is, is immune to this. Um, and it's understandable because uh, for a lot of people, politics involves issues of real importance and people feel passionate about it and they feel like they're in battles and, 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 and fights and debates of real consequence. And often it's core to who they are. And when you get in a debate over issues that are core to who you are, you bring a lot of energy and a lot of passion and often a lot of anger with it. There's no question in my mind, if you, you know, look over the history of the pro progressive movement as it relates to, to people on the right, there has been some aggression. There's been aggression rhetorically. There's been aggression even in terms of, of uh, the policies. Uh, you know, Roe v. Wade would be, would be an example. Um, Prior to that decision in in seventy three, it, it was a state by state decision, and it was the the view was that they, each state could work out what its own politics was on that issue, and that was actually what was happening. Um, but the Supreme Court came in, but progressives were happy about that and declared this was a this was a uh, fundamental right, and it swept aside the views of you know some very large segment of the uh, of the country that held a different view. And then the view was not respected. It wasn't said, look, this is, I understand your view. I just have a difference with it. It was framed as if you are a misogynist or patriarchal or you, you hate women. And there was no empathy or no understanding that from the perspective of a person who's pro-life, they weren't being anti-women necessarily. Many of them obviously, in my estimation, were not. They just felt like that there was an unborn child that had to be taken care of. Now, it's a real debate about, is it an unborn child? And at what point does it become? And when do the rights of the woman and the child inhere, um, if at all? Uh, but one could at least understand, I think, uh, what what the position of the pro-life movement is. Also, in this country, you had a real uh, revolution of cultural and social mores, sexual mores from, from the late 60s and early 70s and the so-called sexual revolution. Then you had... Uh, Gay marriage, which which happened in a very short period of time. Look, the gay marriage debate, I mean, it was people like Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Rausch who made the conservative argument for same-sex marriage. And they were huge figures in shifting public opinion. So right now, a majority of Republicans are in favor of, of, of same-sex marriage. But now in this country, and, and not only in this country, you have the debate about transgenderism and what are the rights of parents and at what point do you use puberty blockers for, for, for kids who are 8, 9, 10, 12 years old? Um, and the left is pushing that pretty hard. Um, Gavin Newsom and the governor of California is pushing it. A lot of others are doing it. And, um, and I'm certainly sympathetic to, to people who are saying, 
wait, wait a second, hold, hold on here. Are these kids really in a position to know this? Should this be something that's being peddled, an ideology that's essentially being advocated from schools? And what about the rights of parents when it comes when it comes to this? You can't give kids aspirin without parental consent, but but what are we supposed to do? Pretend that you know puberty blockers and more is beyond their realm. So there have been efforts of cultural aggression on the left. There have been efforts of cultural aggression on the right. And the two worlds really don't seem to understand each other. And it's very, very hard to ask somebody on either side to say, can you, before refuting the arguments of the other side, state in good faith what those arguments are? We find that very hard to do. Uh, It's just much easier to put people into cartoon images and to make them moral monsters. Um, And through that process, we view ourselves as righteous and, uh, you know, warriors in a just cause. Uh, so it's, it's, it's tricky stuff. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Let me follow up with a question directly to you. And I should preface this, Peter, by saying that I'm personally drawn to your temperament and approach. But I think your critics on the right would probably say that you're not mad enough or you're not prepared enough to fight on cultural or political trends that you almost certainly oppose. What would you say to them? What are they missing? Well, they could be right. I mean, it, it, it may be that I'm that I'm that I'm wrong, and that my threat assessment is um, is is wrong. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. I could be wrong on you know in this in this moment. So I don't pretend for any for a moment that uh, that I'm the repository of sort of wisdom and and truth on on this. I would say obviously I think I'm right. Otherwise, I change my views. So in any given moment in time, all of us believe uh, that the positions we hold are 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 are, are roughly clear correct. Um, I'd say a couple of things. The, the first thing is I, I, I want to make one clarification about even my own criticisms of evangelicals and Republicans when it comes to Donald Trump. I've, I've always said that I uh, understood their argument of why they voted for him, particularly in 2016. I think 2020 was harder because he, it was so clear what kind of person he was. But I heard these arguments at, at the time in 2016, and it went something like this. Look, Donald Trump isn't a perfect person. Morally speaking, I might prefer Reagan or Bush or Romney uh, to, to, to Trump. But the choices between um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and we believe Trump's policies will be will do more to advance the moral causes and the causes more broadly that we believe in. So, for the good of the country, I'm going to vote for the person who implements the policy. We're voting for a president, not a pastor. Now, I understood that argument. I didn't agree with it, and I think that events have have validated my own um, concerns that I raised as early actually as 20, 2015 about about Donald Trump. But I get that argument where I think that the the right, the evangelical right, the Christian right is very vulnerable is on these grounds, which is what 
they will not do almost to a person, there are some exceptions, but almost to a person, is that they will not speak critically of Donald Trump. That is, they will not say, on the one hand, I agree with Trump's court appointments, or I agree with his tax cuts, or I agree with his positions on abortion. But at the same time, he's a moral and ethical wreck. He's transgressing all sorts of norms that we once believed in, that he himself is a man of borderless corruptions, and that there's a cruelty and crudity to his politics, and that he's a a malignant force in our culture. And to say those things at the same time, which is I agree with his policies, but I'm willing to speak out and criticize him out of moral and intellectual integrity. That almost, uh, that, that doesn't happen almost at all. Most of them, having thrown their hat over the Trump wall, um, simply will not criticize him. Certainly not publicly. I've heard private criticisms about him, but publicly they won't do it. And when they do it publicly, it's extremely muted. And that's, you know, for a variety of reasons. Some of it's fear. Some of it is for ratings and, 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 uh, and clicks. Uh, some of it is, uh, just a sense of tribalism. He's the leader of our tribe. Um, and the other tribe is much worse and much more dangerous. Um, and they want to destroy our country. And, you know, he's a quarterback and we're the offensive line and we're there to protect him. And there are enough liberals who are criticizing him. So we're not going to criticize him as a Republican or an evangelical or a conservative. To me, that is uh, ultimately indefensible. Um, I think that that is a sign of, 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 of a kind of intellectual and moral failure, um, that they won't use the same standard on Trump that they certainly used on Bill Clinton and any number of, of, of Democrats. Having said that, John Rausch, uh, was, who I mentioned earlier, is a friend of mine. He and I wrote a piece in the New York Times uh, several months ago that people can, um, can, um, read uh, and look up. And we did uh, basically a threat assessment and we pointed out what we believe were the very real threats from the left, which is a, has elements of a totalitarian movement. Uh, you see it in, in the so-called woke culture. Um, and that can be an imprecise term, but most people know what we're talking about. If you talk to academics uh, in, in, uh, in, in college campuses, but also increasingly in newsrooms, reporters, um, there is a kind of intolerance of dissenting opinion, which I think is anti-pluralistic and dangerous to the country. And I'm happy to, to say so. And I, earlier I talked about some of my concerns with the, with, with the transgender movement. But my threat assessment is simply different. I would say at this particular moment, the American right, the MAGA movement, uh, the Republican Party is the main threat to the republic, to its ideals, and even to the Christian faith, because I think that the wedding of the American evangelical movement to this version of politics is doing enormous, even catastrophic damage to the Christian witness, particularly among younger people who look at these people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus and have given themselves so completely to this corrupt man and this corrupt movement that they look at it and say, this is a moral freak show. You, you want me to become part of this? Who, who, who are you kidding? I also think the American right is much more inclined toward political violence today than, than, than the American left. And we know from the events of January 6th and since that this is, um, I mean, some of us saw this coming and could see the, the elements throughout the entire Trump presidency. But they are at war with truth and reality in in a very deep sense. They 
Um, and the American right essentially rallied around a person who attempted an insurrection, a coup, a violent assault on the Capitol uh, to overturn a free and fair election. And to this day, that is the, um, the, the point of entry for the Republican Party. If you criticize Donald Trump and speak honestly that this is a series of lies, you see what happens. Liz Cheney is is the person who's the obvious example, a test case. She is as conservative as can be. Her credentials as a conservative and a Republican are much stronger than Donald Trump's has been. She's been a lifelong conservative, part of a family of conservatives that's been very influential in the Republican Party. She's persona non grata. She was kicked out of leadership. She was targeted in her primary. And the speaker of that former speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, actually went to Wyoming to campaign against her. Why? Because of her, her, her philosophy? No. Because of her position on public policy? No. One reason she told the truth about Donald Trump and the lies of the election, the threat he posed. That shows you where the heart and soul and energy of the American right is. And, and it's not just political. Again, I think it's an assault on truth and reality. We've seen it with, with, with masks and vaccines during the pandemic. We've seen it in the denial of global warming and, and in a lot of other areas. And I think it's now a nihilistic movement. And I think that is a huge danger to this country. And I'm sure as a person who was part of the Republican Party and the conservative movement for a lot of years, um, seeing that kind of nihilism um, take root and find a home in a party that I was a part of um, makes makes it even more urgent, in my estimation, for me to to uh, to speak out against it. Let me pick up something you said about the corrupting effect on the Christian institutions. Do you want to talk a bit more, Peter, about the consequences of this growing schism within the Christian world over politics? What has it meant? for ministers and churches, and an institution that, as you said earlier, isn't necessarily inherently political. Yeah, in my conversations with pastors, and I've had a lot of them, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of friends who are pastors um, that I've made over the years and others, acquaintances, and people I've interviewed for, for my, uh, my essays. Um, and from what they tell me, um, and I think what, from what the evidence shows, uh, the empirical evidence, ministers are uh, and churches are having a very difficult time. I mean, they're splitting over politics. Um, there are some ministers who who are certainly high profile, political, pro Trump, pro MAGA, like Robert Jeffress and uh, Franklin Graham is not a minister, but he's head of of well, he's obviously part of the, the Graham family, which is a important place in, in the American evangelical movement history, and but also a, a figure at Samaritan's Purse and, and elsewhere. And these these people are reflexive uh, pro-Trump cheerleaders who will n- never criticize him and always, always defend him. For the most part, though, I think that uh, ministers, including in the evangelical churches, um, are l- less p- political than many of the people in their congregation. And they don't want the church to be obsessed with or focused on politics at all. They feel like they didn't, they didn't get into the ministry um, to preach politics. They don't feel like they have a particular expertise or command of politics. They know that if they weigh into political waters, it's going to divide some number of people in their congregation. So if you take a, a, a position on uh, immigration, 
say, on one Sunday, then when you speak on Philippians 3 the next Sunday, some number of people just may tune you out, say, look, this person is a liberal or this person's a right winger and they don't have anything to teach me when it comes to uh, comes to the gospel as um, as well. But there's there's no question that churches are fracturing, that there's a kind of, you know, this is just in the air and the water in America. I don't know how it is exactly in, in Canada, but I, I'm, I'm pretty confident it's worse in this country. Um, it's a distemper. It's an antipathy for others. Um, and it's broad and it's wide and it's deep. Uh, and it's found its home in all sorts of places. Families have certainly experienced this, in which are te- intense divisions based on, on views of Donald Trump and, and the Republican and Democratic parties. We see it in churches. We see it in clubs. We see it all, all over. Um, but the church has really gotten pulled into it, um, unfortunately. And, uh, and pastors are just worn out. An awful lot of pastors are thinking about leaving the ministry. Um, and the ones that aren't, that are still there, often find themselves tired and discouraged. Last thing I'll say is what pastors say uh, to me, which I think squares with, with reality, is it doesn't take anything like a majority of congregants to be politicized to cause problems in, 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 in one's church. It just requires a couple of energized, activated, animated people who can cause a lot of trouble, a lot of discord um, in, in, uh, in a church. And, um, you know, that has, that, that, that has, that has, uh, that has a cause. I mean, ultimately from a Christian perspective, the church is there to create community, uh, to, to, to help people who are suffering and grieving, uh, in life, but also to share in people's joys, to be part of that journey. Um, that, that we experience in, um, in life to be faithful to the witness of Christ and help people's affections of their heart to be, you know, to be won over to Christ if, if you're a person of Christian faith. But increasingly, a lot of people on the right think that their job is to promote a political agenda and a culture war and to prosecute that culture war through the church. And I think it's not been particularly effective in winning the culture wars, um, witness their own testimonies of how bad things are. And in the process, as I said earlier, they're embracing uh, certain uh, means to their ends that are disqualifying. Um, and, um, And when you make your inner peace with a figure like Donald Trump, uh, and you claim to be um, a follower of Jesus, that in the end is not going to work out very well. That's not going to settle very, uh, very well. And the rest of the world knows it. And I wish more Christians w- were able to see what's before their their eyes. I just have a, a few more questions, Peter. I'm grateful for the generosity of your time. You mentioned COVID politics earlier. Let me Let me raise that subject now. I listened to a podcast episode not that long ago with Dr. Francis Collins, who up until recently was the longest serving director of the National Institute of Health and a major figure in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. He's also a leading Christian voice in American culture. It was quite a moving conversation in which Dr. Collins broke down in tears when he talked about his surprise and disappointment that many of his fellow Christians had among the lowest rates of vaccination in American society. Let me just ask, what do you think's behind that? What's the relationship between faith adherence and vaccine skepticism? 
Was it inevitable? What am I missing? Yeah, um, I don't know what you're, what, what you're missing. I don't think it was inevitable, but I do think that there were elements that, um, that are, help explain um, this very discouraging and depressing moment. Um, I should say that, that Francis Collins is a friend of mine. I've done a couple of profiles on him in the Atlantic. Um, I think he's an extraordinary human being, uh, one of the brilliant scientists uh, in, uh, in our history. And a, and a person of a, of an unbelievably generous heart. Um, and because of that, that's, that's undoubtedly why Francis brought to that podcast the emotions that he did, because he has seen in a way the rest of us have not the human catastrophe, the, 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 the thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths that could have been avoided in this country, uh, if not for, um, believing. Um, these, these, this misinformation and disinformation about the, uh, about the pan pandemic. And he's committed his life to saving people and to see so many people die and to die unnecessarily is just a very, very difficult thing. Why is that? Why is, why are the vaccination rates lower among evangelical Christians and the rest of the population? Um, and why are the conspiracy theories um, so much more widespread? I'd say part of it is just the history of the tension, the unfortunate tension between science and faith. I mean, you go back to the early part of the 20th century and the Scopes Monkey trial and the feelings of, um, um, of hostility toward, toward, toward Darwinism and, and, and evolution the old earth theory and so forth. So unfortunately for, for many, many years, for more than many years, I mean, for centuries, there's been a deep hostility to faith and science. You can go back to Galileo and the, you know, Copernicus. Um, and that's been uh, destructive, not ultimately, I think, particularly to science, which has gone on, but I think to, to faith as people have made certain claims about, about the Bible as being true and science being false and then science showing, no, actually the, the, the science is true. And ultimately in many cases, uh, people have made their, the, the, you know, reconciled the faith. For example, the, the, the belief, the heliocentric geocentric debate. I mean, the, the Christian church believed from scripture verses that they cited that the sun revolved around the earth. And when it was turned out that the earth revolved around the sun, there was a real hostility to that view. But eventually it became so obvious that, uh, that people came to understand, oh, well, these verses that we thought argued for the sun revolving around the earth were actually hyperbolic. They were not literal, that the Bible itself is not a science book. The same thing about the age of the earth, that the earth being created in six days, they weren't literal six days. So I think that's part of it, um, which is that hostility toward towards science. Um, and then I think part of it is that a lot of people who are, who are uh, of, of the Christian faith and the evangelical movement, um, because of where they line up culturally and politically, there's been a lack of trust. They, they wouldn't say that they're denying truth. And I don't think the problem is truth per se. So if you, because if you argue to an evangelical that, that argued who, who didn't believe in the vaccines or believed hydroxychloroquine was a cure for, for COVID, they wouldn't say, uh, 
they wouldn't be moved by the argument that they're not believing in truth. They would just simply say, I'm believing a different truth than you do. So the problem is trust, not truth. And they have come to believe that these certain elite institutions and authorities are part of a liberal progressive worldview and that they've been peddling lies. And as I referred to earlier, they then have access to all sorts of websites and misinformation and disinformation to confirm what they already believe. So if you have a discussion with somebody of the Christian faith who believes that a hydroxychloroquine is a cure for COVID or believe the vaccines were, were, um, were not effective or that they were part of a gigantic conspiracy theory, they could send you websites links to websites that would justify what they believe. So I think some of it is the history of science and faith. I think some of it is just how Christians have aligned themselves culturally and um, and sociologically and politically. And that group tends to be more skeptical of institutions like NIH, which happens to be one of the great institutions in the world. My penultimate question is about you. What has this experience been like for you we started talking about how you're a conservative who spent a big part of his life in a conservative movement in which your values, preferences, and even your temperament were pretty orthodox. You're now, like many others, on the outside looking in more than you used to be. Have you lost friends? Have you lost professional opportunities? What have been the pressures to sign on to the program, so to speak, over the past several years? I mean, they've existed. There have been pressures. Um, but you know, life, life has its pressures and life has its, have its challenges. I don't, I don't consider them overwhelming. Uh, nothing that, um, I and, and my family haven't been able to, to, to handle. Um, it, it, friendships, um, I haven't really lost too many. I've tried to stay quite intentional about maintaining friendships, um, in this era. Um, it's been tougher with some than others uh, because of the emotions that are that are that are brought to it. I mean, some really close friends of mine over the years are are, are really um, hurt by my position, disappointed in me, believe that I'm an advocate for causes that they think are tremendous threats to their worldview and their belief system. They believe that I'm blind to 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 the to the real threats, that I'm disloyal um, to the to the party. Um, and I, I understand that. I obviously disagree with it, but I understand it. Um, but for the most part, I've tried to stay connected. And, and, um, in some cases, uh, there are people who, um, I've established friendships with, uh, and those friendships are pretty deep. So that allows conversations in which there are differences with Trump, but that has to be honestly carefully monitored because if it gets too stuck on politics it can become you know to it can uh, become too inflamed so you know you have to be be careful about about uh, about that um but for the most part i really haven't lost too many friendships um as i said there have been some costs to it but 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 not ones that are worth going going into i'd say as a general matters sean though that this was just not a hard call for me. Um, I, this was actually one of the easier calls that I've ever made in my life. To me, it was so obvious almost instantaneously what a threat Trump was 
to the things that I cared about and things I believed in, including the Republican Party, the conservative movement, um, the Christian faith. And I just feel like that those things have, those concerns have, have been validated over time. And to see where the party and the evangelical movement has gone as every transgression, as every assault on, on truth, on every, every smashing of a norm. And yet they've stayed with him and stayed with him and stayed with him. I think it's, it's, it's had a tremendous cost. I also think if you'd have asked, say, the 20 or 25 people uh, that knew me best and loved me most pre-Trump, um, where I would end up, given this set of circumstances politically in this moment, I would say the ones that do know me best and love me most would have been disappointed if I'd have come out um, in a position anywhere different than I, than I, than I have. Um, the people that I have admired most in my life, not all of them, but most of them, um, uh, I think share my concerns about, uh, about Trump. Uh, my siblings who've all been Republicans through their life have been extremely encouraging. Um, and so have the people of faith that are most in, important in my life. And that's, and, and my wife, Cindy, uh, has been there every step of the way. And uh, and my kids who are now older, uh, not hugely involved in politics. I think if if there were a situation in which they, the if the people with greatest standing in my life felt like I was making a mistake, um, and that I was you know a traitor to the cause, or that I was advancing all the wrong things, you know that would make it harder. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily end the discussion because I'd have to be convinced by my own lights that what I was doing was wrong. But, um, but enough far, far and away enough of them have been there. So I think that's, that's, uh, been helpful to me. And most of all, I would, if I would have ended up any place other than where I have been, I would have been disappointed in myself. I mean, I can't, I can't believe that a person who has said the things I've said and believed the things that I've believed throughout my Christian life, throughout my conservative life could turn into a, cheerleader for Donald Trump or MAGA world or a defender or refuse to publicly call him out or privately criticize him, but publicly be in favor of him. That's just not how I'm wired. It's not how I operate. And uh, um, it's not how I want to operate. I don't think it's how I've operated. So I'm pretty comfortable or, or at peace with with my position. As I say, I, I just think the facts that's, that have unfolded have uh have come out more i would say on my side than on on the side of my uh of my critics and i think that my critics ha- have a harder time defending their position now in in light of of events the natural concluding question i guess is where do we go from here how do we get christians and churches to askew politics and renew their commitment to the transcendental what is it going to take is it a new generation of christian leaders is there reason to think that the Dobbs decision may over time lead to a democratic settlement on abortion and that can have a positive effect on Christian political engagement? What, Peter, does a path forward look like? Yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with pastors and theologians on exactly that question, and there's nothing that's 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 obvious. I, you know, in my experience, it's much easier to diagnose the problem than to come up with with a, with a solution to it. And, and then you can come up with certain solutions, public policy solutions, reforms, political reforms, reforms to social media that can help. But, but sometimes one is still, is still left with, with the feeling that this is just an overwhelming, um, 
problem. I, I would say that um, one of the things you, that you mentioned is uh, probably works to the favor of the Christian faith over time, which is, I think, a new generation of leaders, younger people. I don't see a, a lot of younger Christians who who look at Robert Jeffress or Al Mohler and say, there's a person of principle that I really want to um, use as a role model. I mean, some of them exist, uh, probably within the Southern Baptist Convention, a, a lot of them. But I'd say for the most part that that isn't there. I think this is partly a, a generational thing, um, uh, mindsets that over time will will change. I, I think that younger Christians just have a lot of different views um, on on this um, on this matter. I think the church has to get back to catechesis. That is the training of of the sensibilities of the hearts and the minds. Um, and I think that the church actually has to name what's going on. Um, you know, I think there's a tendency sometimes because the divisions of politics to think, well, if we don't name it. It's not going to exist. But it's like a human relationship, a family relationship. If there are strains, if there are anger, if there are issues, the fact that you don't name them doesn't mean they don't exist. And indeed, if you don't name them, things can get much worse. So I think we have to name them. I think that the church has to be in, intentional, shouldn't get involved in certainly partisan politics, politics generally. But I think the issues of, 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 of justice and the common good and the moral good need to be discussed. And I think we have to name where things have gone wrong. Also in Christian history, not, not just in the here and now, to be alert. I, you know, I found in my conversations with 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 Christians that they're often blind to, to the very mixed history of the Christian faith and the church throughout history. I mean, it's been an, an engine of justice in many cases, for sure, but it's also been an, an engine for injustice uh, and benighted views as as um, as as well. So, I think we have to we have to name it. I think part of it is that so many of the pastors who are aware of these concerns that we've been talking about need to, to be in community. They have to find support with uh, among themselves because if they feel like they're just isolated and going through this alone, that just is discouraging and leaves them vulnerable and they might give up. So I know that there are organizations and institutions that are, that are trying to, to create this, this sense of, of community. Some of it may simply be that we can't continue at this rate. This is just too exhausting. Uh, that there's a kind of exhausted majority. And I think if the church lives up to what the church is at its best, that it's, that it's a, 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 a place of, of grace, um, and, uh, and of, uh, of joy, um, that that will offer an alternative to this kind of divisions. In my experience, when Christians and when the Christian church embodies grace, that more than anything else cuts through the din. It's when people see embodiments of grace in institutions or individuals that even those who aren't believers uh, see it and say, that, well, there's something to that. Or even in some cases, friends of mine who are atheists who have said, when I see embodiments of grace, those are the times in which I wish I could could believe. And then the last thing I'll, I'll say, Sean, is that I think it's just important for people uh, of faith uh, to be faithful, not to set up, not necessarily to be successful. If you set up the standard for yourself to be a success, that may not work. And whether we're successful or not is often beyond our control. But what we do have control over is whether we're faithful. And if we're faithful to 
to to our beliefs uh, and and to what is good and right and honorable in life. Um, and you just you know take it a day at a time um, and a circumstance at a time and a season at a time. And you hope that over time that that has the power to win hearts and 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 minds and souls. There's a the lovely line that Wordsworth used uh, in the prelude. It's a very long poem, but he said, "What we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how." And I think if the Christian Church and people of Christian faith can love the right things, um, then they will in turn teach others and show others how to love those things too. And um, you know, if one person does it, it's not going to make much of a difference. But if a lot of people do it, you create a culture, and a culture um, ultimately can determine the course and life uh, of a country. There's a ton of insight there, Peter, as there has been throughout this conversation. I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Peter Weiner from the Trinity Forum, contributing editor at The Atlantic, The New York Times, author of the must-read book, The Death of Politics, and as listeners have heard today, such an important voice in our moment of fracture and dysfunction. Peter, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks. It was a real pleasure talking to you, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.